I feel the people who struggle with depression and who ideate and who are still here and still surviving live their life. I guess they say they walk through the fire, but I feel like I live in the fire. Hey there, my name is Sean, and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives, and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including this bald guy, aren't very good at it. So, one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations, and hopefully better conversations with survivors. I will keep trying. A gigantic thanks to each and every suicide attempt survivor who has joined me here on this podcast since we launched in July of 2020. We're coming up on two years. And of course, to everybody who listens, we really do appreciate it. Now, if you're a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at suicidenoted.com, Facebook or Twitter at Suicide Noted. I will also include a couple of additional ways you can reach out to us and learn more. Those links will be in the show notes. And I know I say this a lot, but it really helps if you rate and review this podcast. You can do that on Apple. Finally, we are talking about suicide on this podcast, as the title suggests. So please take that into account before or as you listen. But I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. Today, I am talking with Carla. Carla lives in Texas, and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Hey there, Carla. So where are you? So I am in Dallas, Texas. I was born here, grew up here, um, went to college here, and now I live here with my husband. How did you find this podcast? I'm always so curious. Um, So my best friend recommended it. She and I kind of joke about our mental health back and forth. Um, we have a pretty good understanding of own lived experiences. And we've been friends since high school. So um, I can think joke about things with her that I can't really talk about with people outside of like my therapist and whatnot. Okay. All right. I'm glad that you, you found it, that you're open to sharing. And you presumably are a suicide attempt survivor. I wouldn't say it's an attempt in the way that a lot of people might experience it. For me, it's always, I was always looking for an opportunity. My therapist identified me and I only saw it because I looked at paperwork as a jumper because that's the way that I would go. I asked her why I wrote that, why she wrote that on my paperwork because we have kind of a tough relationship back and forth, but I really don't want to go through the work of finding another therapist. And she just said, well, you told me and... I didn't realize I had like divulged that information to her. And I th- think I came to that conclusion too, because I witnessed two completions mm-hmm. before the age of 18 and one, and they were both in very public places. So one was in on the Brooklyn bridge, which is really, I guess, popular place. And the other was at a mall. And I remember the one at the mall wasn't high enough to complete it, but he passed after from the complications and so I always thought at the back of my mind if I'm going to do this I want to do it 
right. I don't want to have to deal with complications after. I just want it to be quick and fast and to the point. When it came to my own, my own attempt was right after my service dog had been attacked. Service dogs can't have a bite history, even if they're defending themselves. Um, And so I was at work of all places and somebody thought that it would be funny to kick my dog, my service dog. He was not aggressive in any shape, way, or form, but if you attack an animal, they're going to defend themselves. So he did. As a responsible handler, I was forced to retire him. But that also meant that I lost all of my freedom. Okay. So a couple of questions, if I can go back, all right? Yeah. So you witnessed two suicides, which is not common. That's, no. It's pretty unlikely. The, the, the numbers are not, yeah. Yeah, I was, the first one, I was in New York City on a school trip, um, touring campuses um, within the city. Um, And the second was just at my local mall. And they jumped, it's three stories. So you can go look through, look down the middle and you see the ice skating rink. Um, And they jumped off a trash can and onto the rink. And so I think that really set me back. Or it kind of gave me the idea that if this is how I was going to do it, then I just wanted it to be done correctly. I didn't want any mistakes. And I really didn't want the people around me to deal with the consequences of my choices because it was my choice if I was going to go. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I wasn't going to do it for anyone else. And it wasn't because of the influence of anyone else. Um, I struggled with depression and I've had a diagnosis since I was 12. And I've been in therapy and on medication since then. And I'm 31 now. All right. So I was, yeah. So you said when you were 12, you were diagnosed with what? So I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety. Subsequently, I was, I was diagnosed with ASD. So I'm on the spectrum, which is why I had a service animal. Um, And of course, with depression and um, autism comes all these other comorbidities. And so your body is exhausted. And mentally, I was just exhausted from, I mean, having to interact with people when I'm just not I'm not good with people because it's the world's not built for me. I never had a trigger or something that would trigger my depression or put me in a, cause me to relapse. It was just, I guess, exhausted by life, having to live in a world that wasn't really made for me and having to navigate relationships and friendships and work and as a professional on the spectrum it was really exhausting. I felt like I was always reading in between the lines and never getting it right. From 12 to when that incident happened with your service dog, in that time, are you um, ideating at all? Are you thinking about suicide? Yeah, every day. But I never had the opportunity. I never had access to a place high enough to get it done. I would constantly look at places to go, okay, is it high enough? Am I just going to break my legs and not be able to walk? Am I going to end up in a coma? And then my mom has to deal with the consequence of what I'm choosing to do. And that's, you know, that's not what I would want. I wanted it to just be quick and to the point. So I, I looked every day and I never had the opportunity. The day that my service dog was attacked, it was really the day after that I was going to attempt. And it was at my job. I worked for one of the biggest fashion retailers in the country at the time. And I had dealt with a lot of bullying because of my service animal, just professionally and within like social groups at work, because it took my invisible disability 
and made it visible. So I kind of lost that safeguard. I really, I had the accommodation that I really needed at work to be successful. And when I lost that, I felt my freedom was gone. I couldn't go, I can't go anywhere by myself without a service animal. So I just felt like I was going to be stuck at home all the time. For me, it felt like prison. So the next day at work, I went to the top floor and it wasn't even that high, but I was so tired. I mean, it's four floors. And I thought, okay, if it didn't do it for the man who jumped three stories, maybe an extra story will just get it done because I'm so tired. My coworker who really knew kind of the details of my disability and my mental illness kind of, I think she kind of sat me down and said, we need to go to the doctor. Um, There was a clinic inside of my office. She took me in there um, and they put me on oxygen, got me to calm down. You know, she saved my life, but that didn't stop me from ideating after the fact. Just to be clear, you said you were on the roof. Was she also on the roof? It wasn't on a, it's not a roof. It's if you think of an atrium, it, there's mm-hmm. four, four stories in that atrium. And so I, I walked up to the fourth story, which generally associates can't get onto that floor. It's just for the executive level people. I mean, people with the, that make the big bucks. Um, and I, I just went up there. I didn't care because I was so scared of like what was to come. I wasn't sure if I was going to lose my job, which I think at that point I could care less, but the fact that I would feel like in prison, always at home and not being able to go anywhere or do anything. Yeah, I just felt like, well, at this point, I have nothing to lose, which wasn't necessarily true. But it's the freedom that kids get when they're, you know, they go from having to beg for their parents to take them everywhere to suddenly getting a car and being able to go and do all the things that they want to do. They don't really have to ask. And that's how it kind of was for me. Yeah, that happened. And and I still struggle. COVID didn't really help because without a service dog, I felt, well, there's really not a need for me to go anywhere. So then I developed like agoraphobia, further anxiety of like new places. And so I haven't attempted since. I do work in a high rise now and I don't have access to anything, which is good. But um, I do let my friends and family know, at least the people who are more familiar with my health where I'm working now and just so you know I don't have any access so I don't want you to worry about me but I was really concerned about how high up I was going to be working when did that happen that uh, attempt or almost attempt 2019 got it you were married at the time no I wasn't married I met my husband like ironically a month later we were just friends for a long time then it just worked out that we ended up together. We got married December 2019, which was really fast, but I don't regret that decision at all. He's been really understanding. When it came to like replacing my service animal, he drove me to Minnesota to go pick up the new dog and it's helped with training and super supportive in that aspect. But explaining to him what depression is like is difficult because it's he's from Turkey so they don't always talk about mental illness there but also it's just a stigma to to be ill at all you know I just told him it's like having a headache all the time you know it's just it's just a health issue it's not as mysterious as people think hmm when your friend found you or saw you and she said I think Mm -hmm. you need some support what was what happened 
I told her that I was just going for a walk. She knows how stubborn I am. We're still friends to this day, but she's like, no, I think you need to go now. And so I really just wasn't going to fight her on it. I didn't have the energy to argue. So I just went with her because I was like, whatever, I'll just deal with this later. I'll take care of this later. And so I went to the back, got ambulance, got oxygen. And I didn't tell them that I was going to attempt. There's no way that they would have known. My friend knew. They just sent me home from work after that. I just didn't want to go through the hassle of having to explain to people why I wanted to do that. I mean, I don't know why I'm depressed other than it's genetic. And I've always had this as long as I can remember. I just didn't get a diagnosis till I was 12. I get tired of explaining to people my personal health problems Mm -hmm. all the time, especially with a service animal. Like I said, it takes an invisible disability, something that you can kind of keep close to yourself and it makes it really visible. But then you need that dog. You need that medical assistance to live, to live normal like everybody else. I think she knew me well enough. We, you spend most of the time in your life with the people that you work with. So I was really lucky to have people that I liked and that I could be open with about certain things because I didn't want them to think that I was being flaky or low energy or I wasn't being friendly. I just had stuff I was dealing with and I was doing the best to be as professional as possible at work. But it crosses over and you can't just take your depression hat off and leave it at home. You know, it, it just goes with you wherever you go. So you have to, at least I had to learn how to function with it. Just like the way I learned to function with ASD, I'm relatively support, low support needs. However, there are things I struggle with. And I felt like communicating only as much information as they needed without giving my entire personal history. And so I don't know. I just didn't want to, I didn't want to talk about it and explain, explain my attempt to death. Be funny, but I just didn't want to walk in circles around it, you know, and I come from a pretty religious family. So, you know, they have that, oh, you're going to hell if you do this, or you're going to hell if you do that. But what's the difference to me? At least it was, I thought, what is the difference? If it's God's will for me to live this way, why do I have to suffer? Mm-hmm. Like if I'm, living in hell on earth why can't i just end it here and go somewhere else that was my rationale you know that con that comment bothers me a lot when people say it is that how you feel now i don't feel like that now i think hearing myself say it back is a little bit jarring at least to me but i don't feel like that now i feel like i I have a better understanding of what this is medically And I don't consider myself a very religious person, you know, but if I did, I felt like, well, God made me a human being and I have, he gave me all these emotions. And if I am allowed to be pleased with him, I'm also allowed to be angry at him. And that's normal. You know, I don't feel that I'm, you know, stuck here. I enjoy my life. I love my life, but there are days, many days where I just question, like, why am I here? I think people think, oh, well, we stay around for the people that we love. I have a lot of people that I love and that are very supportive, but the people are not enough. You know, the people are not enough because people fail you and 
they're fallible, they're humans, you know, they're not perfect and that's okay. But the last thing I would want is for the people in my life to think that it was their fault or they didn't do enough, but it's just because they're humans. Humans are not enough to convince people to live all the time. And what happens when those people are gone, then what, what is your backup plan per se? You know, for me, when I really struggle, it's because I have like no vitality, no, nothing to light my, my butt on fire and no goals. And so I'm constantly chasing after a career goal or a travel goal or something. And that's what I use as fuel to keep going. You know, I feel like what happens when I have all of it or have all the things that I want and there's nothing to keep me going. I haven't reached that yet, you know, but hopefully, you know, I find something new to care about. Yeah. So hospital? No, I haven't had a hospital stay. My therapist has threatened to 5150 me lots of times, but she'll always evaluate me in person. And I let her know that I'm 30, flirty, and thriving. I'm fine, which I really should have been hospitalized a couple times. I guess I know how to talk my way out of it, if that makes sense. Um, because I cannot afford to be hospitalized, especially not in my line of work and not with the people that depend on me. So I try to be really mindful of where I'm at mentally. I saw a TikTok the other day that said, like, you know, if you're having a crappy day or you're relapsing your depression, like gaslight yourself. And it kind of helps to a certain extent, but I feel like sometimes I've done that to my therapist to keep myself out of a hospital. I don't like being there for general health reasons it's too much sensory wise. So I don't know how I would handle it for a psychiatric stay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We don't have enough places for people who are suffering like at all. Unless you're really rich. Right. And I think the, the facilities that are available to, you know, the working class, to the poor are awful. You know, they don't really help. And it's just another way of putting somebody aside or in a, a prison so that they don't inconvenience you. Instead of adjusting the world to be more accessible for people with mental illness, with autism spectrum disorder, or whatever mental illness there is or developmental illness, instead of making it more accessible, we just put people away so that they don't bother us. And mm -hmm. I mean, it's a shame because there are some really amazing people that, and, that could contribute to the world or to our lives. And we just don't include them because it's too uncomfortable. I think people get really uncomfortable talking about depression and mental illness in general, but I don't know. I think my jokes that I make with my friends kind of help destigmatize it, at least in my, my immediate group, because sometimes mental health can be funny. I mean, the things that I do to keep myself afloat might be a little out there, but I'm still here sometimes against my own will, but I'm here. Well, I was going to ask you, like, what do you do to feel okay or to cope? I'd like to, I mean, I'd like working a lot. That's probably not a healthy way to cope. I really love what I do. And so being able to set those goals helps me feel better aside from working, training my dog, even though he's a service animal, he performs his tasks, but training him to do new tricks or really just talking to my friends and my therapist. Um, I've got my therapist on text. She doesn't always think my, my jokes are appropriate, but I, I think she thinks I'm funny for now it's working. And, and I, you know, I have a great mom who's really 
open and, you know, it's never kind of turned me away in terms of how I feel. So talking to people, I know it sounds like it's really cliche and, oh, you should just talk about it. But for me, especially being on the spectrum, I'm always, I've always been obsessed with trying to understand my mental illness and myself because I didn't understand other people too well. And so I thought, oh, if I can understand myself, I'll understand my relationships with people or how other people interact. So I have different special interests and sometimes trying to check out of my own brain sometimes and not thinking too deeply, just enjoying like little dumb things I like to do or, you know, planning my trips. My favorite thing to do is hike. So I live in the city, so I can't really do a whole lot of that. But planning my next hike is always exciting for me and looking forward to that is exciting. So do you, what's the word I'm looking for? Maybe wish that your friend hadn't seen you that day and that you had died? I mean, sometimes I do the days where I'm in a lot of pain. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting great, but I thank her too, because the thing is like, I, I love life and I love my family and friends and whatnot, but that's not always enough. And so you know, on the bad days, yeah, I'm pissed because I felt like I was making a decision with my own life. But at the same time, I know how bad that was and that I'm okay now. You know, even if I have, if I do relapse, and I have relapsed since then in my mental health, that I will be okay on the other side of it. If I ever do decide to do that again it's has nothing to do with the influence of other people in my life or you know certain circumstances but it's a choice that I made because it's always been something I've thought of Mm -hmm. I can't remember a day where I didn't you know in my life at least within a week I can't remember a time span where I just didn't think about it you know even when I was really good and had come out of my depressive state it's always in the back of my mind but I feel like there are moments of my life where the good outweighs all of that darkness. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad to be here to witness the good things in my life. And you've got a new dog. I do have a new dog. My retired service dog is a pet now. He lives at home with me. He still tasks and he's a sweet boy, but he is afraid of people now, um, which I, I totally understand that. Um, I don't want to put him in that position again. Um, and I don't want to put other people in danger. Um, but I do have a new service dog. Training him was really hard with COVID because you can't really go into public spaces. It was really expensive too. People don't realize that service animals are not covered by insurance. That is an expense that someone takes on themselves entirely. Um, and that comes down to the dog and the training. And so like the cost of the dog was about $6,000 and training is somewhere around $40,000. So when my first service dog had to retire, it wasn't just the shock of like, oh, I lost my freedom, but I'm also out all this money that I put into my first service dog and I have to pay that again. And you have to do that within, you know, you cannot work a dog that's too old or a dog that's sick. All It's like this perfect circumstance. Mm. So it was really frustrating to me to lose all of that at one time, not just the freedom, but also all that money 
know, that I had put into him. Mm, man. Wow. How many people know? And I think I know the answer because of some of the stuff you've shared about your general, let's call it like mental health challenges, and then more specifically about the attempt or near attempt. So my my parents know about my mental health challenges. They don't know about the attempt. Um, the only person who knows is my friend from work who helped me. And then my best friend from high school who recommended this podcast. My husband knows some, but I sometimes struggle telling him the details because I don't want to overwhelm him. I think sometimes just trying to understand like invisible illness mm. and invisible disabilities is kind of difficult, especially when that's really not talked about <clears throat> in the culture that you come from. My coworkers now, they kind of know, I mean, it's just three people at work and I had to tell them because I do not work the way that they work and I don't learn the way they learn. Um, and what I do is very process heavy. So I needed to adjust the training that they were giving so that I could understand what was going on. But also I go to therapy and sometimes those sessions take place while I'm at work. And so I have to walk away from my desk, get on the phone and they're pretty accommodating, but I didn't want them again to think I'm being flaky. So there's a very small handful of people, but in terms of that know about my mental illness, but in terms of my attempt, it's like two people that know. And not even my therapist knows and I've been seeing her for like nine years. Why haven't you shared that with her? She's really tough on me. She's kind of a no bullshit kind of person, which is great for me because I, you know, I need somebody who's tough on me that way. But she has told me that I needed a hospital stay. And as I said, I cannot afford that, not just financially, but in my professional life. I only have so much sick time I can take. It's not very much. I really don't want to explain to, especially in my professional life, why I have to take a leave of absence. Because they make you kind of go into detail about those things. I ask for medical proof. And the last time I provided proof like that regarding my, my personal health was when I was at the, at the fashion retailer and I was kind of bullied relentlessly because of it, because they were not supposed to share my health information with my boss or manager. And somehow the HR personnel shared that information. And I mind you, I had been there for four years before that. And they had no issue with me, um, but I was really struggling. And so when I finally asked for my accommodation, they started treating me like I wasn't capable of doing my job. And I wasn't capable of, you know, taking on more responsibility, which to be fair, they shouldn't have added more responsibility to anybody's plate. We had way too much work to do, but to treat me different because suddenly now, you know, the details of my medical history that you shouldn't have had privilege to anyway is something that it still sticks with me. And I don't want to deal with being treated like I'm different at work because I have depression or because I'm on the spectrum. Because I wouldn't have gotten this far in my career if I wasn't able to do my job. Sure. When you are when you were sharing some of that and then some of the other things you mentioned about kind of just not feeling like the world's made for you, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. You know, people will say, often like go get help makes sense right but when you when you when you dig a little bit more into the actual what does that look like for this person in their life with their job 
and then you're like, oh, it's not so straightforward. It's not so easy. If it were that simple and easy, yeah, probably we would be like, okay, it's never, it's rarely that simple. It's expensive. There's, there's costs to you and your reputation, your chance to make, which isn't absurd, but at the right, that's the reality. Yeah. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about mental illness and autism and how it's treated in the workplace because in Texas specifically I mean in the U.S. work your job is required to provide you a reasonable accommodation but that reasonable accommodation sometimes is the bare minimum Mm -hmm. and that might be just moving your desk or allowing you to have headphones you know, and when I asked for the ability to work from home at the time, it was pre-COVID and they said, that's not possible. Mind it's you, true. there was no reason for me to be at work yeah. to do my job. I could have done the whole thing remotely. And I did, um, you know, at the beginning of COVID before I got laid off, I did do it remotely. It's just this good old boy way of thinking that if, if you can't handle the heat, mm-hmm. then you should get out of the kitchen. Mm-hmm. But I feel the people who struggle with depression and who ideate and who are still here and still surviving have a pretty high pain threshold because it Mm -hmm. takes a lot to live through life when your brain is trying to shut you down. It's just trying to take you out. And so some people live their life, I guess they say they walk through the fire, but I feel like I live in the fire and I'm still here. Right. Oh, man, I have these images of these probably older, sometimes good old boys could be women. But in my mind right now, the image is men. I'm a man. I'm saying it. And sort of what they're thinking and sometimes what they're saying or implying that kind of fucking sension, like they really understand the fight and the struggle, which which they might. We don't know about their lives. Who knows? But as if you don't get it, you you aren't tough enough. If you've heard this podcast at all, you know, one of the things that always talk about it makes me just uh is yes is this idea that the 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 struggle and the fight for people who are in this kind of pain to just continue is 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 extraordinary it really is and you know when people say oh i'll pray for you i'll pray for you that's it's such an empty thing to say it's like well i don't know what to tell you and i have no idea how to help you but i care but i can only I only have so much energy to devote to you. And people with depression aren't asking you for you to sacrifice all their time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes all it takes is, you know, for me, the most helpful thing somebody has told me is I understand, or, you know what, I can't understand what you're going through, but what can I do to help you? Mm-hmm. And I sometimes don't have an answer for that. Sometimes it's just like, you know, just call me and text me. If you haven't heard from me in a long time, check on me because I have a really tight group of friends. And if I am not messaging in our group friends group, or we're not talking, you know, I haven't said anything in a couple of weeks, it's probably because I'm not in a good place. And Mm -hmm. I'd really, I'm not asking for the world. I'm not asking them to come over and bring me wine or whatever. It's just, Hey, you know, what's going on? What can I do to help you? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't always need somebody's advice. I just, Knowing that I have the support because it's really helpful, especially because when I'm in the midst of the my depression and that middle middle of that hurricane, I forget like all of the support that I do have. Sure. Yeah. 
Is there other, are there other things that you sometimes hear that are frustrating or upsetting? You had mentioned people saying, I'll pray for you or offering advice. I always, I'm just always so intrigued by these conversations. Cause I'm like, you know, like I've heard people say, Oh, therapy is a waste. Medication is a waste, but I've been on it for so long. And I'm convinced that the only reason I made it out of like my teenage years was because I was in therapy and medication isn't for everybody. It was, I knew that, that addiction runs in my family. And if I wasn't going to take medication prescribed by a doctor to help me with my mental illness, I would have self-medicated in another way that would have been way more harmful. Um, And that's the case with my sister. You know, she, I don't want to share too much of her story, but she is an addict. She's, she's in the midst of depression and psychosis, which is really a really ugly thing to have to deal with. And it feels like I'll never get her back. But in hindsight, you know, I'm really lucky that my parents and school counselors were really persistent on making sure that I saw a therapist and that I got on some kind of medication. I'm not, not, sure, not sure if I would be here, but if I was here, I would definitely be addicted to something else. It sounds like you do have some people in your life to talk to. You mentioned some good friends. Yeah, my degree was in communications. So I learned how to communicate really effectively, at least to the people around me. And that was really important because being on the spectrum, I don't always know how to express how I'm feeling. I've always made, I always, I kind of live by I guess, philosophy that the people around me are not responsible for my feelings. You know, I'm responsible for them, but if they do something that hurts me, I have to communicate that to them because if, if I don't, then I can't hold them accountable for ways that, you know, they might've hurt me. And sometimes it's a total misunderstanding. I don't always get the social cues and whatnot. They're like, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. But communicating how I feel and where I'm at has really helped me, I guess, gain some further clarity with, with people whose opinion I do value. You know, my, I might come off as a little bit crass or flat tone sometimes, but I don't mean to. I just, I need to know what you mean by some joke or something. I'm just trying to figure out what they want to really say to me or if they meant mm-hmm. it at all. Yeah. What did you mean earlier when you said you kind of gaslight yourself and that helps? Yeah, I saw this TikTok that said it was this guy. He was joking, but he's like, when I have a bad day, I just gaslight myself and I say, why are you like this? You know, like you were fine yesterday. Why is why are you having such a crappy day today? I guess another term for that is like just practicing mindfulness, but it really helps. I mean, it can be a little bit um, dark and twisty. So I feel like gaslighting myself. I mean, other people will do it to me. Why can't I gaslight myself into better mental health? And it might not work for everybody, but because I rationalize my way (laughs) out of some of the occupational therapy or some of the therapy I've received, I feel like the concept of gaslighting myself is sarcastic enough that it works for me to an extent. That's the thing, right? Figure it out. As long as you're not hurting people, like, you can. Very blunt question. Okay. You said it. I'm just using your words here. You need people to be very clear with what their intentions are, right? Or what they mean. Here's a very blunt question. You're 31 years old. Yes. What 
is the number I should be asking you in terms of will you make it to 32, 34, 38, 44? So if you had asked me, I didn't think I would live beyond like 27. I hadn't planned my life out beyond that far. And when I did reach 27, I was like, what the fuck am I going to do next? And so I don't know. I just started focusing on things that I like to do, which are hiking and travel. And so at this point, I can imagine my life up to like 45, maybe 50, because now I'm married and I have things I want to do with my husband. But that doesn't mean that it's always enough. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't have my life planned out into my retirement age. So I don't know, you know? Yeah. And I imagine if you were seriously contemplating, like later this week, jumping off a building, you're not going to tell me. You're not going to share that with the world. I mean, I joke about it with my friend all the time. She's like, well, if you're going to go, you have to tell me because you can't just leave me here, you know, but um, I don't have access to anywhere, which is good, uh, I guess, for the people around me and for myself. I mean, I'm pretty honest. I probably would say, yeah, I mean, maybe next week, but I don't have that planned right now. I've got some stuff I have to take care of. So those responsibilities also kind of keep me distracted from that in a way. It sort of came up as we were talking, though I didn't explicitly ask about myths, which I often do. Are there any particular myths around mental health, ideating, suicide, or other things that you want to dispel? Yeah, I think I mentioned earlier, but that the people are not enough. You know, I think people think, have this idea that it's selfish and look at all the people that these this person left behind, but people are not enough. And that's because humans are fallible. They they were perfect, then we wouldn't have mental illness to begin with. You know, if that's something that's ever been told to anyone, oh, well, look at your family. You have all these people to live for. You know, what happens when those people aren't there anymore and they move on with their own lives or they're not here because they pass away? So there are so many factors to why somebody chooses to take their life or tries. It's not always because in the back of their mind, Maybe they say, oh, I want to stay for my family. But it's, if it was, if the people were enough in the first place, they wouldn't have tried. Maybe so. And many people, I'm adding this, you're not necessarily agreeing. I think many people who attempt to take their own lives are not necessarily mentally ill. Yeah. I think sometimes people are in a place of desperation and they just don't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. And I've had friends that struggle with depression and they never ideate and they don't attempt. And then I have had friends that have taken their lives but have never really shown that they struggled with depression and mentioned that they did because I've lost quite a few friends I didn't witness their their deaths but I've lost them to suicide and I had no idea or they were perfectly fine and just you know Mm. suffered the severe loss of somebody they loved or a Mm. job and that was the that was a breaking point for them so By the way, you might not know this, that one of my not big dreams in life, but a kind of a dream is to get paid to come up with book titles for people. I think I have a gift. I have to tell you, I really do. Uh, I have to say something you said, and I believe if I'm, tell me if I'm getting this in, in, I'm not correct here. People aren't enough. Yeah. That's a book title. You don't have to pay me anything for that. (laughs) That might be a title worth exploring 
if you yeah. want to write a book. People aren't enough. It's straight to the point. It's a little bit like different. Like, wait, what do you mean? Do you have anything else you would like to share? Question perhaps that I should have asked anything else about any of this stuff? There, like I said, it's, you know, I wouldn't wish this illness on anybody else, on my worst enemy. Mm. Um, and I say that, you know, with the most, you know, with every fiber of my being. And that's because it makes me feel having this illness. It makes me feel like, I don't, I don't know. I just it makes me feel just like an outsider to the rest of the world. When all I really want to do is just live in a world that includes me. And I think with mental illness and with autism, it doesn't, it doesn't include me. And I'm just trying to navigate it and make it work for me because it's never going to be built for me or made for me. But I appreciate the people in my life that have been accommodating so far. They've made a big difference. Ever watch the uh, old 70s, 80s television show Dallas? I haven't. I've heard a lot about it. My husband is obsessed with it. Really? They watch it. They watch, yeah, he, he grew up in Turkey and... So their whole idea of what Dallas is about or what it's like is built around that TV show. Is it not what it's about? Not really. I mean. <laughs> it's not all just oil people and pretty people? There's a lot of uh, pretty people here. They're not yeah. generally from here. And uh, ironically, a lot of the people that live in Dallas aren't from Dallas anymore. They moved here from Los Angeles or True. from New York. It's a big sure. city. I mean, people think we ride horses and. You know, we do ride horses. They're just Mustangs and yeah, cars. Kind of a big city, yeah. Yeah, it's a major town, major city, and uh, it's getting bigger every day. Every day, better or worse. Thank you, Carla, in Texas. Really do appreciate it. Thank you. All right. I hope your days are at least decent. And now you can go tell your husband to make noise. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Bye. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. Special thanks to Carla down in Texas. Thank you, Carla. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you would like to talk, please reach out. Hello at suicidenoted.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at Suicide Noted. You can also leave us a recorded message. It's real easy. Speakpipe.com slash Suicide Noted. I'll also put a link to that in the show notes. Click it. It's super easy. You leave a message. You send it to me. It goes right to my email. I want to hear what you have to say. Your comments, your questions, your ideas, whatever you'd like to share. Really, I do. And that is all for episode number 113. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.